Welcome to Molding Masculinity. I'm Tom McFarland uh, here once again with Philip Sipe. And this week we're going to talk about vulnerability. Uh, well, vulnerability I, vulnerability and shame. Um, I'll talk about that here soon. I kind of have a link, a link that I want to make between those two. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, it'll be a good topic, I think. The... Um... I think this is like kind of the big um like my take is is that i think it's a the big dividing line between um you know what informs a lot of the sort of negative aspects and negative experiences of masculine people um and you know places where um you know they can be a more positive and a, and a more positive stance. Um, not saying this super eloquently, but like the, you know, I think um, this is a big one, in my opinion, it's a hard one to get over. And there's a lot of deeply ingrained habits built around never seeming weak or vulnerable or anything um, that are good to unpack. Yes, uh, 100%. I'm, so I actually am coming into this episode for the very first time feeling pretty well read on the subject um well read in that i read exactly one book i have a master's degree now um but, but no and no, i mean seriously i i so i just finished uh daring greatly by Brene brown uh who is a research psychologist that i don't entirely we've many many times talked on this podcast about my beef with psychology uh the field of psychology um i don't entirely agree with Brene Brown on all subjects. Um, that being said, I do think she makes some uh, very good discoveries and points in this book. Uh, I think it is a very valid discussion. And um, in, she specifically ties together vulnerability and shame in this book and so and it's from a woman's perspective it's uh, she admits in the book that she kind of you know is, is you know in from writing it from her own perspective was really kind of having women in mind in a lot of what she was talking about and there's kind of like one chapter that's kind of specifically about men uh and it was it kind of began with like her mentioning this in a conference um and kind of feeling a little uncertain as to how much this applies to men and then being a little taken aback by how strongly uh men and the audiences of her talks reacted of like no 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 this is my my whole experience is this shame um that is these shames that are felt and these vulnerabilities that we don't feel like we're able to exhibit because of the shames that we feel um it's it, it's it's a fundamental part of kind of masculine education is this idea that we are perpetually in contest with everyone else and showing any form of vulnerable self of not being up to a task to uh, of of showing any form of um uh oh, what is the the word she specifically uses um, i cannot find specific words when i try to find them in my brain but it's like whenever we're like short of things whenever we have a lackage of of oh man i really need this word and it's right there scarcity scarcity it's mm, this, yeah, this scarcity yeah. principle of like 
uh, yeah, yeah, it all folds kind of together in a way that I think is very fascinating and very interesting. And it, so I, I, I specifically began one of our other, or I, I talked about an example of this in one of our other episodes where it was a, a man who was talking about how um, his, it was like his first time at a football practice in high school. And uh, he goes out and his coach tells him to charge and tackle the other kid. And he doesn't do it immediately. He pauses for a moment and has this, you know, kind of thing that humans do of like, oh boy, I don't really want to do that. And his coach calls him a pussy. And he immediately feels this intense shame. And instead of doing anything healthy about it, he immediately like redirected the shame into like a like I'm gonna take all of this and I'm gonna direct it into this guy and I'm gonna hit him as hard as I can. Like and and it was and he was talking about that's how he then for the rest of his life kind of dealt with and when he felt shame he attacked a problem. He tried to bottle up all of that shame and then expressed it as anger and violence. And he only knew how to do it in that way. And I think this is something extremely common among a lot of men where we don't know how to express our vulnerabilities any way other than anger and violence. Yeah. And I have to say here that there's a, uh, a struggle that I have when it comes to this and that like, you know, we talk about, these kind of behaviors among men uh, on the left side of politics um, fairly often. And I find myself finding that in a lot of these spaces that are supposed to be progressive, we end up um, punishing a lot of men uh, for their vulnerability. (laughs) Um, You know, it takes uh, you know, it takes a lot sometimes to go in and say like, Hey, I know I have some problems. Like, um, what can I do to improve? And we get responses sometimes like, it's not my job to educate you, which like fair it isn't, but like, that's also a kind of punishment, you know what I mean? It's like, there's, there's like, if, if your response is like, Hey, I feel, I want to be vulnerable and share that, like, I'm struggling with this. And I'm really not sure how to do it. And I'm just feeling a little bit lost. And your response is like, oh, that's just because you're ignorant and dumb. Like, even if there's some truth to that, it's like, like you're teaching that person in that moment that being vulnerable was as scary and awful as they imagined it to be. (laughs) And that is going to make them want to never have that experience again. Like, and like, there's so much of this that's like ingrained in the way that people respond to men broadly that I get frustrated with because I regularly just find myself feeling a little bit unable to be vulnerable in leftist spaces for fear of you know like i think the way that a lot of people matches like for fear of like getting canceled or like whatever but like just for fear of being piled on and punished for not being perfect you know yes no 100 percent. I, I know where you're coming from i think most men know where you're coming from and i think one of the you know and this is one of the things kind of wrapped up in this is this idea of systemic problems rather than personal problems. The issue isn't the personal individual. It is 
actions of that individual and it is systems around that individual's societal structures. Um, and, and so one of these is, again, going back to this, uh, going back to Daring Greatly is a thing that she talks about, not in the political, which one of my big criticisms is that she doesn't have a political education. And there's a lot of things she's talking about that fold directly into a lot of um, uh, politics, like, uh, like the, the, the academic word there is escaping me, but into, you know, socio political uh, ideology or not ideology but political political academia that if she had that education there's like a lot of intersections i think that she could pull some things a little farther with but anyways my point in this is to say that it's this idea that if you shame an individual for who they are rather than their actions if you feed into a dichotomy of good people bad people rather than good actions and bad actions you fuel the system of shame that creates a barrier to vulnerability. You're not able to sense vulnerability because you feel shame. Because you know that I, if I ask somebody about this, I'm going to be the dick. I'm going to be a bad person because they're going to see me as a bad person because I'm asking this question. Um, so you have to create this division of saying that action, this thing that you believe has problems to it you're not a problem but this thing you believe is problems right so i think that's part of that there's also another element of that that is the systemic end of it and this is part of the whole reason that i was and am very uh enthused about this podcast why i wanted to do this podcast is that there is not spaces in male in masculine society or you know there is no spaces to have this kind of of vulnerability to talk about these things men turn to people who are emotionally exhausted they turn to women to explain this stuff to them who are emotionally exhausted from fucking dealing with it so they really just don't have the energy of the spoons to deal with it but men turn to them because they have no idea who else to talk to. Because you can't talk to other men about these, these, you know, these, the the problematic like structures of toxic masculinity. Because if you talk to other men about it, you're going to get ridiculed. You're going to get shut down. You're going to run into these barriers of like a lot of men not wanting to be vulnerable with one another. And so I wanted to model that in this podcast. And also by talking about it, it's like it is that conversation, right? Yeah, for sure. And like, you know, there's obviously no like easy fix like, and understanding like the sort of long-term outcomes of approaching a certain thing. It's, it's really difficult. We have a problem where basically an entire gender is uh, been, you know, raised in a way that is not good for them. And they have a lot of emotional deficiencies and a difficulty like understanding and, and doing these sort of like more positive behaviors. And, and the problem is, is it's like, okay, we all recognize it's a problem, but you know, a lot of the people who are available to explain those things are people who are constantly victimized by that. But then like, there's no one to teach them. So it perpetuates and it's an, it's kind of a nasty, like, a, a cycle of toxicity kind right of. cycle that's the word i was looking for yeah it's 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 got this sort of 
you know, problem to it where, you know, people are gonna basically like to me, there's this nasty cycle of, of, you know, men who don't know how to be vulnerable in a healthy way and, and not lean very heavily on people that, um, you know, where they essentially are asking for free emotional labor from a bunch of people, they end up in this trap where um, there's no one available who has the, or there's little to no one, certainly not enough people to combat the overall systemic problem to individually push back this sort of like wave. They don't have the space for that. But at the same time, like that ends up perpetuating the problem of that, like, it's like, Oh, well, there you go. See, I can't be vulnerable because uh, anytime I try to reach out and say how I'm vulnerable, like uh, people tell me how I'm a bad person for uh, not uh, knowing how even how to approach the problem, you know, and it's, uh, uh, it's a, it's a rough one. Like it's not, uh, there's no obvious solution because like you can't obviously like in an ideal world, like this would be solved at some, you know, big thing of, of, you know, some big education program or, you know, everyone would have the space to educate, you know, men for, uh, on how to be more emotionally, you know, available and how to be vulnerable without, you know, feeling threatened and stuff, but it's just like, it's not, you know, it's not there. Yeah, no, I agree. And you know, I'm, I'm uh, a little uh, forgiveness before I do the thing. I think I'm about to take us on a little bit of a tangent. But, you know, one of the things that I find kind of interesting is that in the process of traveling to Asia and in China, I encountered a lot of discourse around the difference between high school in China and high school in the United States. High school in China is extremely academic. Kids come out of high school way more academically capable than most kids in America do. Um, but there's this kind of a argument that exists on really in both in China. I was hearing this argument from, uh, from, from teachers and administrators there. And I've heard this argument from teachers and administrators in the United States that there's a fundamental difference in that the education system in the United States is more focused towards providing a social education. So when you're in primary school in the United States, you're largely learning social skills and how to interact with people. And in China, you're extremely focused on academia and you don't learn these social skills parameters. But I kind of argue that we don't fucking learn that in America either. We are very broken socially in a very different way than a lot of Chinese teenagers are when they come out of high school. They're like hyper isolated a lot of the times. Uh, they often have a lot of mental, like there's a lot of mental health issues that exist in China because of like over pressure put, like too much pressure put on kids at, at too young in their lives. But we have a lot of, like we, we're not better socially. We're not better emotionally capable. We're not, we don't have a higher emotional intelligence. We don't have a higher social capacity for handling these kinds of things we have maybe some better potentialities in like un and in, in like social manipulation i think i i i I'm, maybe i'm being a little spicy here in my experience i find americans are a lot better at social manipulation than people from a lot of other cultures and countries are but we're not 
better it emotional intelligence and i i think that is like it it's i i think we often forgive the failures of the american education system on but at least kids are learning how to operate in a social environment but we fucking aren't yeah well and i'll say like to to give some degree of hope here you know certainly uh, uh i'm noting that you know socialized education is part of my kids uh education and in schools so you know the, there is something going on you know that is you know improving the situation <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, and this is one of those things that is, like, very approachable by the adults who are parenting kids, in that, like, you know, you are able to build a village around your kids, and I think by us and our generation being maybe a little bit more aware of this kind of stuff, because, I mean, like, one of the things that we have aggressively seen, and we've talked about it on this podcast, is kind of a, a growing... um emotional intelligence and emotional awareness that kind of exists among a lot of our generation and younger generations than our parents and our grandparents maybe kind of experience or exhibit at least. And one of those elements is that like we are more, I think, capable, like what more specifically we have access to more information that allows us to understand the, to 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 be capable of building these kind of social environments and educations for our children right like i mean like a critical part of what i'm wanting to do for my kid kids uh, eventually is ensuring that i have a community around them growing up that is has a similarity to red dirt collective this kind of a, a group of people who are aggressively working for their community through through a multifaceted uh kind of strategy of things there's always things going on there's always people around there's always these kind of social structures and and, and purposes and goals and value systems that are on clear display I think all of that is super important. I grew up with like little nuggets of that that is to this day super important to me. And I mean, this is a, another critique I have from kind of the American social system is that I think a lot of people grow up in an extremely sanitized space where there are no virtues put on display. Like, you know, we, we criticize the idea of virtue signaling, but virtue signaling is an incredibly important part of parenting because how is your kid going to grow up to be the person you want them to be if you never signal to them what virtues are important for them to develop for sure uh there's it's a kind of nasty trap i think like a lot of times like you know it's just a matter of you know like this is going to be up to be a thing that kind of gets better in generation i think like you know this is obviously not the most helpful advice to people that aren't fathers or you know planning to be them but like there is a there is the the opening that you know those of us that recognize the problem for what it is can spend a lot of time trying really really hard uh educating ourselves hopefully if we're lucky finding someone who really understands this to help us through that education because I can just tell you from my personal experience, educating yourself in an area where you don't even know where to begin is extraordinarily difficult. And you are very, very prone to falling down 
uh, nasty traps. You know, a lot of the like sort of self-help areas of like Jordan Peterson, for example, I think are capturing a lot of these people who like recognize that there's a problem. I have a problem of some kind, like things aren't working out the way I want. Uh, and they can, you know, give them easy answers, you know, um, when you're like, man, I just need someone to tell me some like good rules to live by, like a book that's like 12 rules for life is like, oh, hey, that's what I was looking for, you know. Um, but, you know, regardless, like trying your best to improve that and be and be more vulnerable and be more comfortable with it uh, and modeling that behavior to your kids, helping them to be vulnerable and showing them that when they are, you still love them, you're still gentle with them, you don't make them suffer when they show vulnerability or weakness can be a way that this improves you know forward um you know unfortunately the system's just not there to help the current wave of men all get the kind of emotional education that they need um so i think your best hope is often just hoping that the generational path <laughs> uh, is one of improvement. And, you know, I've seen a lot of comics and like uh, stuff like that on, you know, social media sites like Reddit and Facebook of, you know, showing like an older gentleman who's like basically like abusing one. And then there's another one that's kind of like yelling. And then the next one, the next guy in line and the generations like has a shield and it's like blocking it, blocking all that like abuse from hitting the child and the child, you know, saying, and he's like saying like, I love you, you know. I, you know, like, I think the reason that those kind of things resonate with, you know, me and a lot of people is because, you know, we feel that, like, I, that I see my dad a lot as someone who's like that, knowing how physically abusive my grandfather was to him, and, you know, how much worse uh, my great grandfather was to my grandfather, and, um, and whatnot. Um you know, I do see that generational improvement when it comes to that. And it does seem like it's getting better over time. I think we all wish that there was something that we could do to get better at ourselves. Uh, you know, if you have the money and availability to do therapy or, you know, mental health, you know, that's a great resource to learn these things. I think that like, you know, first, first exercise in vulnerability is go to a therapist and admit all your weaknesses and, you know, let them help you with that, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, and one of the things that I've found very helpful out of Brene Brown's book is the, and, and this is one of the reasons why I kind of started this trying to tie together shame and vulnerability is one of the most critical kind of elements she puts forward as a way of building the ability to be vulnerable is to build shame resilience because this kind of shame kind of leading into this lack of vulnerability and it's like once you're able to build resilience to feeling that shame, once you're able to stop internalizing things. Um, it becomes easier to become vulnerable and like a lot of the elements that she was talking about uh, involve things like recognizing – so first of all, like as she puts forward, a critical difference between guilt and shame is this idea that shame is something internalized. Shame is when you – I'm, I'm going to use an example and I'm getting a little bit personal with this. But recently, I 
ran into a situation where I was feeling so I'm in a, you know, like we're, we've been talking about like me being a stay at home dad and there is of course, of course, a lot of social kind of pressure put on the idea of a man staying at home and not working and taking care of well, any, you know, that, that part of it is relevant. A man staying home and not working in the culture I come from is something to feel a lot of shame about. Uh, now, the shame there is the internalized part. It's the saying, if I'm not working, am I a bad person? Guilt, on the other hand, is to say, is what I'm doing aligning with my values? So if what I'm doing doesn't align with my values, if I'm actually being lazy and I'm not contributing to the community, to the space, and to the family of which I'm a part of, that doesn't align with my values, then we have a problem. However, if I am contributing, but my, con but what's actually causing the shame is the perception of other, the perception that others have of me, and and how that is then internalized, that's something else to address, right? So that's kind of the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is this, not like a lack of alignment with values. Shame is this internalized guilt. You know, it's guilt that's been turned internal to where I am a bad person. And I am going to be a bad person because of this. And I am trapped now in a cycle of being bad, which is a thing I've grown up with an immense amount. So many people like I have known my own age and, and even older than me and just around me growing up who were people who often had done very bad things. Uh, you know, it's kind of part of this kind of a, like a sort of violent culture of like, you know, maybe they had gotten in a fight with somebody over a drug deal and somebody got really injured let's say um and then afterwards they're like i just did a like it wasn't i did a bad thing it was i'm a bad person i'm a fucked up person i've done shitty things i am trapped in this i am now a person who can only do shitty things and that just causes you to continue doing shitty things feeling guilt about it saying what i did does not align with my values that was a shitty act I need to not do those acts. I have to do better acts. Keeps an external, external, you know, that's a valuable feeling. That is something that you're able to, it's external and you're able to see that, witness it and say, okay, I'm going to make better decisions. But once you've internalized that and you're a bad person, it's hard to make better decisions. And then that's where it's also hard to be vulnerable. It's hard to talk about those things. And we kind of get instinctively defensive. The Once we've internalized something, if somebody brings it up, we're going to get defensive about it. And that's where, like, I, I, to me, I feel like that resilience is able to be built up. So, it, like, going back into that scenario, when it first kind of it got brought up of, like, am I contributing enough if I'm a stay-at-home dad? I got super defensive about that. I got super mad about that. I wanted to be like, this is bullshit. I shouldn't have to, like, prove myself to other people. I'm angry at the world. I'm angry at all of this. And I had to stop and process through some of that, determine what was guilt and what was shame, and try to move that shame off of the table. And once that was, like, once I had, like, once I had, like, the, once you identify something, what is shame, what is this internalized thing, it's, it kind of loses its power over you. And I was able to be like, oh, okay, now I'm able to look at this rationally and figure out what I should do from now. And it's, I don't know, it helped me. Yeah, no, I think that's a lot of like, 
a lot of these kind of like, you know, a big challenge, I think, of sort of coming out of, you know, like toxic masculinity or whatever and trying to be better is that there's, you know, if you've, if you're in a situation where you've been, you have learned, as we talked about, you know, several times, uh, including, I think, you know, maybe the very first episode of this podcast, uh, to turn every emotion you experience into anger, then it gets really hard to then process the reasons behind your feeling. Everything, everything that's not, you know, pleasant makes you angry. And it gets really hard to differentiate it's like, where does this emotional thing come from? You know, uh, like if you were to like, at least when I stop and think about what is the experience like of having a negative emotion, right? Um, the experience of them all is different, you know, like they get channeled into anger, but you can identify, you know, oh, I started out feeling like this like rising heat, you know, that's kind of like a more traditional anger, right? Like, but like, if you're channeling other stuff in anger, you might feel this initial like, oh, like I felt like really small. Well, that might've actually been embarrassment. And now like, maybe we just say like, okay, the anger, that was a bad habit. Why were we, why was I embarrassed? You know, like really having to like, like, and having a model by which you can sort of like think about a feeling and where it might come from and how to unpack that. That's exactly the kind of emotional education and stuff that we've been talking about that we lack. And so like, you're right there demonstrating, like I had a, a, a set of emotions that I didn't have any tools to unpack with and just like was a vague ball of emotion that made me upset. And, you know, someone gave you a tool to uh, open that box, look into it, be like, what's actually in here? Oh, here's this. Oh, here's this. Like, and get into a space where you're able to say, okay, this is shame. This is something that I can just not care about because this is coming from a bad place. This is guilt. And this is something I need to address because this doesn't align with who I want to be, right? Like that it gives you the ability to, to really emotionally process where you're coming from. And that could help you understand like, not just how to resolve the problem in front of you, but also like the next time it comes up, you know, you can go, oh, maybe this is another instance of me having, you know, this like shame, guilt thing going on. And you can, and it becomes a thing that you, it's a skill and you get better at it. And eventually you can just, you just feel those things in a, in a more transparent and honest way than you did when you had them all bottled up and turned everything into anger. Uh, it, it, you know, in the same way that that kind of felt natural, it's just like, oh, I just got angry. Like you'll be able to, to just naturally feel oh, I'm experiencing shame. Like I'm having shame. That's, I shouldn't, I should question that. Or, you know, like, oh, this is guilt. Yeah. I really need to do better about, you know, aligning my acts with the things that I believe, you know? Um, and that kind of stuff is really helpful because you can have an honest conversation with yourself about how you feel and why. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, 
one of the kind of exciting elements of this for me, and now that I'm kind of entering the realm of parenthood here eventually, is and I've you know experienced little tiny bits of this while working with kids, um, and this is how much kids teach us and because I mean, like all of these things we're talking about are practices this isn't something you just learn it in a book and then you're like aha i'm fixed now cool we're good right, yeah like you have to practice these things you have to go out and do this stuff otherwise you're never going to get better at it and kids force you to practice these kinds of things these kind of character building stuff you end up like you know and so Brene brown talks in this book about like with her own parenting uh her daughter at one point being in kindergarten and is like um making a mess with glitter in like the little kitchen play area that every kindergarten classroom has for some reason and one of the other kids like points at her and I'm, I'm making up a name here because I don't remember her daughter's name. She's like, Desiree, you're a mess. And she turns around. She's like, I am not a mess. I made a mess. God, that's so good. <laughs> and like, and then again, she's like, and then with my son, like at one point, I'm like, you know, my dog is like knocked over the trash can. And I'm like, oh, Susie, bad dog. And my son pipes up. She is not a bad dog. She's a good dog who's done a bad thing. And she turns around and she's like, I'm not, no, Susie's not a person. Susie's a dog. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. And then like, re, I don't know, you guys know, first she's like, Susie's not bad. Susie just did a bad thing. And she's like, no, no, Susie's a dog, not a person. This is different. And then her son turns around, Susie, fine, okay, Susie's a bad dog. She's a good dog. She's done a bad thing. And it's just like, you know, it's this, Kids will remind you of the lessons you've taught them so that you remember to practice the things you've taught them. Um, yeah. As long as you do, like I'll say, uh, reflecting back on, you know, my own parenting, you know, I will add a slight caveat here in that you have to do a good enough job on yourself to be able to model that behavior in a consistent way. Because like, unfortunately, like I, you also see you, well, I guess put another way, what you're saying is exactly correct. <laughs> uh, but you may, if you don't, if you are not very careful about your own behavior, see that you have taught them a lesson that you did not mean to teach them. Uh, and I see a lot of uh, mistakes in this arena, in particular with my own kids, where you know I can see them uh, self-essentialized like a lot which uh especially my oldest tends to like really just like take any mistake he makes and really think about it as if he's and i've pushed back on it very explicitly over and over and over again but it's just really hard when um you know when it's something that you struggle with and especially when it's something both parents struggle with you know uh it just gets really difficult to model that in a consistent way that they have that instinct built in um but, you know, certainly um, I think that there's a sense in which, like, even just recognizing it and trying, you know, what, what, you'll, what you'll end up with, what I think my kids will end up with, at least, is a, a mixed feeling about it. Like, a feeling of, like, oh, uh, you know, sometimes I feel this way, but also I recognize that that's not you know, I, I definitely recognize that that's not the right way to do it. Like why, you know, they have, they'll have a better, more questioning framework to examine that a little bit sooner and a little bit better than, you know, I ever did. And it becomes better over time. 
in that way. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, unfortunately the reality is like, no, you know, you're gonna put your, put your mistakes into your children sometimes yeah. and then you may have to all work together to get them all out you know uh but you know that's that's the nature of getting better over time you know yeah i mean like you know two elements of that on, on kind of different sides of the spectrum there is like one is something that i related to very much again in Brene brown's book is she talks about how one of the most critical things we can do as parents is to be the person that we want our kids to be because the the teaching that happens most frequently and most commonly and repeatedly because it's always on display is teaching by modeling you know we're going the, the, the way kids are hardwired is to look at their parents and see that as a framework that they're trying to accomplish so yeah your kids are going to learn more by watching you than you ever intended to teach them and this includes these kind those kinds of things that we don't intend to teach and it's something that like very much resonates with me which with a lot of adults who were really bad teachers for me growing up who taught me really who I learned all the wrong lessons from who also repeatedly told me don't be like me I'm not a good person don't be like me well and like sure I understood that but like I also did a lot of the things I watched them do because that's just how we're like in a lot of ways programmed to do that being said for one thing the people I'm talking about who were bad people were like really fucked up people and I'm a pretty okay person now and this is, brings me to my second point is that kids are way the fuck more resilient than we think they're gonna be like of, of course of course we're not gonna be perfect in our parenting of course we're not gonna model perfect human beings because not a single one of us is perfect we all have something we we're, we all have things we're actively trying to work on. We all have things that we have worked on, but we're maybe not as close as we want to be. We all have things that we've never even realized that we need to work on. I never, I entered this book thinking I have zero problems with shame and vulnerability. I will talk with anybody about anything. I have no problems with vulnerability. I overshare all the time. And this, like, and then in the middle of reading this book, I all of a sudden got slapped with this huge amount of shame and vulnerability I had over an issue that I've been experiencing for a very long time, and I've just never processed and never realized was an issue. Uh, you know, we're imperfect people. That's just a thing that's going to happen, but kids are extremely resilient. They're probably going to grow up to be better than us. That's the beneficial thing of this this is the that generational growth um we're gonna fuck some things up but our kids are gonna be fine for it i was fine despite learning from some people who are categorically worse than anybody who is in your circle <laughs> like um uh you know it's 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 gonna be fine um but it that it doesn't always i i i i can suspect well, I mean, no, I'll say like, you know, teaching, you know, just just being in a classroom, I often very much worry about like, you know, are these kids going to hear something I'm saying and take a wildly wrong lesson about it? Makes me almost a lot of the times kind of afraid to talk about anything around kids because I don't want them to pick up some horrible thing in me that I'm not even aware of. 
Uh, and I can only imagine that getting a million times worse as a parent. And this kid is with me all the time. It makes yeah. me really start to wonder about like, oh, I get why my parents are so tight lipped. Like, <laughs> Yeah. So, but what I'll say, I think, and I think I said something similar to perhaps even last episode, like, you know, the thing is with that, you know, uh, all I can say is try to have as deep of, of a realization of like, uh, if you don't fill in that gap, someone will, you know, uh, and what you have isn't perfect, but if you have any confidence at all that you have a better model than like society's answer <laughs> for that problem, um, give them something. <laughs> and, and honestly, like my approach has largely been like, I'm never, ever, ever going to be able to teach any child everything they need to know to to be the best adult possible like there's just not time uh they literally grow up too fast uh even if i dedicated 18 all 18 of their first years into trying to teach them everything there would be yaps things that i missed things that fell through that we didn't get to like there's just not time but what you can do and uh, what I think more people could benefit from is having teaching them a framework for how to go about understanding and processing and thinking about and whatnot. So like, I worry less about whether or not I'm gonna get to all the lessons, but rather making sure that I instill in him a set of values and frameworks for thinking about things, learning how to, you know, rationally process an argument, learning how to, you know, emotionally uh, understand where someone is coming from, like, and how to think about those things and how to, you know, when presented with a new idea, how do you go about like understanding that thing and, um, seeing where that comes from and like really processing that, you know, essentially instilling them with a good epistemology, I guess, uh, is almost more valuable than a particular lesson about a particular thing, because fundamentally, um, if, if you don't teach them how to teach themselves and how to learn in an effective way, then you know, inevitably the world just changes constantly and they're going to eventually run into something you didn't account for. You know, like my parents did not account for what the internet would become <laughs> because how could they? Yeah. And like the, it, you know, like the, the, the thing isn't now teach my child how to use the internet correctly because I don't know what the internet's going to look like by the time he's 30, probably different. Uh, and I don't know how to teach him to use the internet 20 years from now. But what I do know is I can say, hey, you should know, like when you're online, you know, like, yeah, he came to me the other day with some story about a fruit in India that like grows and looks like a naked lady. And so I went and looked at it and it's some hoax, you know, that someone put up to attract tourism or whatever. It's not real. Uh, 
and you know i kind of went and showed him i was like hey you know let's let's uh you know look at this oh yeah it looks like uh look at i see this little website but do you notice how this website kind of looks a little like um dinky you know it's like looks kind of old and weird yeah okay well maybe this isn't like a really good source let's go oh here's some wikipedia you know like uh like this is a you know this looks like in the look it shows you its sources you can see where they got their information from you know kind of walk them through a little bit of like oh yeah i guess this is probably just made up uh well why would someone do that well you know there's a lot of reasons people make up stuff this one seems to be to try to get people to come and spend money at you know a particular place and you know and he was like oh okay you know like and it was a lesson in you know don't believe everything you read online you know and some methods by which like oh i should check to see if this thing that i read is true you know more than just where i first ran into it and read it in some youtube video or whatever um you know is a much more valuable lesson than um the lesson than than just saying like uh no there's no naked lady fruit um that's wrong don't believe that like that doesn't help them with the next hoax that they run into you know yeah, no, no, definitely. And I mean, yeah, like th those kind of like hyper specific lessons don't account for things we can't account for in 30 years. He's going to be uh, on the island of Arkansas staring into a flaming trash barrel because the power grid has collapsed and saying, you know, my dad taught me this thing about the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> the island of Arkansas. My brain is is... <laughs> desperately so, trying to so, sorry that was a really bad climate change joke uh, <laughs> no 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 i got it i'm just like arkansas is pretty far up there that's a <laughs> that's a lot more coast receding than uh than is predicted well uh, that's uh that's a terrifying uh that's a terrifying uh apocalypse <laughs> i was never particularly great at the terraforming game but somehow i flooded everything <laughs> um, yeah, no, <laughs> um uh, that was an extremely niche reference for the three people who have played the terraforming uh, mobile game on your phone uh it, can't say that i have unfortunately <laughs> um no i uh yeah, no, but uh, sorry, I'm uh, detracting. This episode with... is sponsored by Terraforming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember the actual name of this game. Uh, somebody please tweet it at us. Be the first person to tweet something at us on this podcast. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm using humor to detract from like, no, no, I mean, these are like real serious things that like, you know, I, you know, I think we all kind of in, in, speaking to um vulnerability like this is an immense vulnerability of parenting is we all want to kind of believe that the universe is a little bit static that the world is a little bit static that we have these super important you know lessons to teach our kids that are extremely specific but unfortunately the world's not static even if it's for the good or for the better or for different it doesn't matter like everyone's parents experienced a wildly different world than they did this is the that, that is the like separation that exists between generations. Uh, my parents experienced a wildly different world than I did. Their parents experienced a wildly different world than they did, and and that's one of the things that's like I think kind of the hardest to like structure for because our existential dread doesn't want us to 
think about that too hard. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I remember like something that people used to say is like, you know, like, oh, the modern era is so like crazy. Uh, you know, things changed at such a fast pace and, you know, who can keep up with it? And like, it used to be that you could teach your kids stuff and, and like really prepare them. And, and now who knows what the world's going to look like, you know, but you, you know, hun- you know, hundreds of years ago, you, you teach your kid how to farm and they could farm and then they go on. It's like, um, that's, uh, just like a very ahistorical view (laughs) yeah yeah Um, like going back and reading it like if you really just imagine like a generation in just like say like the roman empire like you're gonna really tell me that like um you know like going from the republic to the empire uh you know in what amounts to like one to two generations and then like the empire to you know like and, and then like dear god the the shift from like augustus to tiberius to caligula to, you know, like this is like all things that can happen very easily within a person's lifetime you know the entire roman empire happened in a handful of you know generations mm-hmm. um, generations span a pretty significant amount of time and just like it's just not um like things things have always changed quickly and shockingly fast uh it's just uh now now we all have the education and information to realize it's happening (laughs) yeah 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 and i mean and that's you know and that's one of the stressful things like i think also like right now immediately like i think a lot of parents are uh, you know, a lot of the parents I've spoken to in the past couple of years is I've been, you know, working with kids primarily during COVID. Like it was really when COVID started that I started working with elementary kids. And I, I noticed a lot of anxiety in parents of like, how do I teach all of this that's happening right now that I don't fully understand and is being ingrained into like, you know, a lot of these kids. Like, uh, what? And, and now, to be fair, it struck me, too. I there was I went to a talent show and I met like there, there was a this couple there that I was talking to and their daughter was two. Yeah, it would have been two at the time. And they were like, oh, yeah, she, sorry. She's really skittish around like people. She's a covid baby. Like she's not been around very many people because her entire life has existed within covid. A lot of the kids I was teaching um, in, in virtual learning classes were in kindergarten and first grade their entire concept of what school is revolves around post-covid education um and so it's like this thing that we're all dealing with is like the standard that is kind of getting ingrained into a lot of these kids and that's really worrying for a lot of adults because again on this kind of existential kind of feeling of like this you know, we, it, it's hard for us to think about three years of our life being something that is foundational to somebody else's life. Like, I mean, the first three years or four years of my life were very foundational to kind of the rest of how I view the world, view the world today. Um, I have a lot of kind of like when I really kind of go back to a standard of what I consider the past, it's definitely the early 90s. Like that is the past I remember is all the early 90s. When I talk about like the things I remember of my parents when I was little, it's all the early 90s. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, and I've I've gotten to see a little bit of that. Like my, 
my youngest, you know, went to pre-K during the pandemic and he's in, you know, wrapping up his kindergarten year now um, in, you know, April, 2022. And I've seen an immense amount of, of growth. Like he went into this year, like he's a bright kid and he went into this year essentially like knowing everything he needed to know already. So I was never worried about him from an academic standpoint, but I was worried about him from a social standpoint. And, uh, you know, they, they have um, some social education programs um, in, in, you know, the younger grades. And I was hoping to see a lot of progress with him. Uh, I was really worried about it because, you know, he didn't have a year of pre-K you know, under his belt where he was socializing with other kids on a day-to-day basis and learning, you know, how to go about that. But, you know, he has grown immensely in the past year of like, you know, I was really worried because like the way he interacted with his brother, like basically anytime he didn't get what he wanted, he screamed. And it was like, oh man, you can't, you can't do this. Like, like, you know, the, the one thing I've noted is that like uh, um, a weakness in, in, in uh, my ability to teach my kids certain kinds of social skills is that um, I'm their dad. You know, I can't give them the consequences of their actions in, a, in the way that strangers can. Uh, you know, like when he screams at me basically no matter how much I have to absorb it and say, hey, don't talk to me like that. You can't do that. You can't scream when you get your way. I can reinforce the lesson. But, you know, it wasn't until he went to school. And when he starts doing that, kids are like, I don't want to play with you anymore. And then like, don't, (laughs) you know, like Gerald, my oldest gets to say that to him, but he doesn't really mean it because they live together. And he wants someone to play with, you know, especially during COVID. So like, it was always kind of a meaningless threat. It was the threat that he learned from school, but didn't really work in the context that they were in. And so like, uh, I think he learned pretty quickly. Oh, I can't go around just screaming at people. No one will like me. (laughs) Like, you know, in a way that in a really visceral, obvious way that like no amount of like intellectually having that explained to him, whatever, you know, get him to understand and you know he made leaps and bounds and now he's um so much more sociable and uh honestly just like emotionally more uh robust than he was before you know before i was kind of like man this kid is just like a little bit um like i was concerned (laughs) about like how selfish some of his behaviors were and now it's like some of those just like disappeared over the course of the year as he you know it would exhibit those the people who had the ability to say like, I'm not putting up with that crap <laughs> and, and giving him the social consequences that he needs to learn to um, do that. And then, you know, fortunately kids also have like a bit of a hair trigger with, with uh, you know, big social swings. So, you know, uh, the ultimate consequences are like a lot of kids will be like, I'm not doing that. And then they won't for the rest of the day, but then they'll forget. And like, they're trying to learn forgiveness as well. And, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. So like, you know, you end up, uh, he ended up getting a lot of very valuable, uh, you know, 
lessons and like what the that kind of behavior really does get you with other people uh who don't have to have a relationship with you uh and so i say all that to say you know uh i i am definitely concerned about the effects of covid on people uh long term emotionally but i will say my experience in, in watching my kid is that you know um they learn fast, especially while they're still young. Uh, and, you know, I think that hopefully as things have gotten more normal-esque <laughs> that, um, you know, they'll be able to get the kinds of experiences and education they need to like have that sort of full human experience or whatever yeah no i agree um i think that kind of wraps up everything i have for this week um anything else you'd like to add before we uh head off into the pluggables um you know i'll say if you're someone who's struggling with vulnerability feeling like there's just no one like I know that like, it's a thing that I struggle with constantly. You know, I have a few close friends that I feel like I can, I could legitimately like, um, I, I wouldn't because this is significantly beyond where my values are, but like, I could probably like, um, say horrendous fascist shit to them and they would be like, Whoa, where's this coming from? You know, like I, I'm, I'm blessed to have some good friends that I can be sort of like completely like, vulnerable with and um therefore help me process things but like you know if you're someone who's struggling with that kind of thing you know uh reach out you know to someone you know if it's us like i can't you know i can't promise to <laughs> respond to anyone that messages us or whatever but like um you know, if you have no one else, at least try and we'll try to respond. But if, if, you know, ultimately like just don't let failures and, and punishments make you, you know, um, feel like it's not worth it because I promise you as much as I still struggle with it, despite having excellent outlets for that sort of thing, um, sitting with it and not having any outlets for it and still struggling with it and having it go completely unaddressed is just like um it's a nightmare so uh you know i'll appeal to another um often paired with masculinity trait here and say like have the courage to be vulnerable um it will hurt um even with people that care for you, uh, because oftentimes you're gonna be vulnerable about stuff that people are gonna have to, you know, criticize or whatever. But ultimately, it's worth it. In the same way that like, it's worth it to go through relationships and have them fall apart. It's worth it to, to, to do this kind of thing because um, the alternative is so much worse. Um, I, I just, you know, 
be vulnerable. It's it's miserable to be alone in your own head. I agree 100%. And I think another element of this is that a lot of this ties into. I think something very critical to develop is a sense of hope um, in that in, in all of that, because I mean, like I, I, a lot of us fall into this kind of trap of like, well, what's the point if I if I'm if I'm if I open up and I just get shut down, what's the point if I get into a relationship and then it's just going to end? What is the point developing a sense of hope, understanding, um, understanding both academically and intellectually and also understanding it in like a visceral feeling of of reality like threat feeling of the threads of reality kind of sense understanding that life is a journey um from po- from one point to the uh, to the end point like you know we only get so much time and this whole thing is a journey and the point is the movement along that journey everything has a like and this is i'm i'm, I'm uh, I apologize if I'm getting a little bit too deep into some of my own kind of personal theological beliefs here. Um, I, I have a very kind of a firm belief that like everything has a beginning and an end. Um, it, it's a part of like some of the projects that I do. I intentionally like art project things. I intentionally destroy after I finish them because the idea is to kind of continually practiced building this understanding I have in my head that things have a beginning and an end. Um, and that end often is very bitter and very like, I spent all of this time on this thing and now it's not there. What was the point of that? The point was this hope and this idea of like, okay, so the point was these things that I learned from it. So I learned the structural, um, uh, physicalities of like how this thing goes together. Like I built this thing uh, like often out of Legos. Let's be honest. I'm doing this with Legos. I'll build something that I like a, a whole new structure that I figured out. I was like, oh, I've never figured out how to make archways in this kind of a way with these kind of pieces. I've never figured out how to mimic the plating on the outside of a ship in this kind of a way. This is a whole new kind of greebling that I've learned. And now, and now that I've learned it, now that I've mastered this little element of it, I've destroyed it. But what was the point of that? Well, the point was the lessons that I learned from it. And then by destroying it, by clearing the slate, by clearing the canvas, I'm able to move to the next thing and try this again and learn something new. And it's the journey of doing all of those individual things all coalesced into one and then packed into a lifetime of one individual from birth to death. That's the point. And that is a hope. It's it, it, that's a that's a whole structure of what hope is and this idea of kind of continually building through to this thing that is often the future, often the like the end of this journey is going like the, the reward at the end of this journey is all of these mountains of little projects that I completed and then moved on from. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm sure we could do an entire episode on, on this kind of sentiment that, you know, like nihilism essentially um but i'll say like uh it was in you know studying things about nihilism and um the responses to it and approaches that you know kind of gave me a sense of hope as well like you know you you talking about like what's the point if i'm just going to destroy it well i mean 
take that to its logical extreme, what's the point of anything if, you know, the heat death of the universe approaches us, you know? Um, but, you know, I take a lot of comfort in the idea of like, um, well, that's kind of a silly question to begin with, right? Like, it's like, like who who said that like the things that we do need to have some kind of ultimate meaning to be worth doing to be meaningful like they have the meaning that we assign to them there isn't like you know this this obviously stems from my theological beliefs at some level uh being like someone who is an agnostic atheist like i'm gonna go like there is no one standing there telling you what's valuable <laughs> like no one ever was and no one's going to and like saying like it doesn't ultimately matter the heat death of the universe is like so <laughs> like have the courage to assert your own meaning you know uh and i i, I find a lot of the uh, a similar sort of feel in the, the thing you describe it's like uh, what's the point of building those things the point is that i learned something and that's like what's the point what's why does it matter if you learn something if ultimately you're going to die because I said so, <laughs> like at some point you just arrive, like I'm going to assign meaning to this because I care to, and I'm going to let that be a thing that defines me and who I am. And uh, I love that. I think that there's a whole, a whole uh, aspect of, of, of the things that we've been talking about today of struggles that people have that are rooted in this kind of like vague nihilism and not really knowing how to respond to that and uh um you know move forward from that point and 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 know what to do with that sort of recognition of the absurdity of meaning you know yeah yeah and i mean and that's in, in tying yeah tying that hope directly to like the the the, the, yeah, the idea of the the vulnerability is that yeah like, like yeah it it that vulnerability is its own project. You learn these things from it, but it also opens you up to a person. And I, so I fundamentally, like, you know, I, like I just said about this, like this journey from life to death, I have many people I've, no, I, I've had a number of people in my life pass away. And I've, always tried to make a point of looking at their life in this sort of a way of like trying to examine the journey they went through during their life of the the journey through their own all of this stuff that they were unpacking and these people who knew who i knew personally it was those moments of vulnerability that are often the most impactful to me and taught me the most and it's these kind of carried lessons from one person to another through these moments of vulner vulnerability and opening up to one another that i think is extremely valuable to what is the fabric of humanity and i'm maybe getting a little bit too i i don't know what philosophical or what but like i i feel like that vulnerability and opening up to a person and having this honest really talking about how these things are making you feel and how you how you need to work through them and how to unpack all of this 
um, and how to find your own problematic elements, how to find like we, we you've talked before about these ideas that we have in our head that we want to cut out that tree and remove that idea. And then those roots find their tangles through our brain. And as we're trying to pluck out those roots, having other people on that journey with us and as they learn from helping us pull those roots out. That's the fondest memories I have of people in my past who have passed away. Those moments with them, those fond, those, those memories are what made me who I am today and will eventually make other people who knew me into who they are. That is humanity to me. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that. And I think like that to me is the biggest, um, the biggest weakness of kind of the approaches that we've had in society where things have gotten contentious in certain arenas like in the early knots it was religion nowadays it's politics and the religion hesitation has stayed off like um you know i'll say like my closest friendships come came from people who i had significant disagreements on on that and and sometimes still do um but um you know, having the, having it be a vulnerable, like uh, there, there's a distinct difference. I think a lot of people have these rules, like don't talk about these kind of things specifically because um, they're points of contention. But part of the problem is they're only points of contention because people feel the need to win. They feel the need to be right. And like the most freeing thing I ever had when it came to politics and religion was realizing that like, oh, um, no one has any idea what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> uh, and um, all, all these like argumentations and stuff that people have all the time, they're just like so bad and so like regurgitated and repetitive. Um, and like, the at the risk here of sounding a little bit like uh like oh you know everyone else has dumb arguments but i think like mine are bad too like that's the that's the reality of it i don't know where they are if i knew i would correct them like but they are somewhere and they're probably wrong in some like really clear way that someone who's thought about it longer than i have will be able to point out to me but like the 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 freedom and the happiness there comes from going like being able to look at my box of ideas, you know, my, the, the trees that I have in my head and go like, this is the best ones that I've come up with. But like, if someone comes along and is like, Hey, that tree is like bad. Uh, it's bad for your forest to be like, Oh, okay. Uh, what should I replace it with? You know, like, and having the ability to like, not have my own identity sort of like wrapped up in things that I think and having that you know freedom to make those conversations ones where at least from my end i can go i don't need to win this because if i'm wrong about it like great i've learned something new that's fantastic that's what i want uh and if i'm not well then you know hopefully the other person is also working with me to find what's most true and they'll realize that um and if not they'll get upset and if they get upset whatever like people get upset sometimes like it's fine but like it 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 makes those conversations so much easier to have because like there's no stakes anymore it's no longer like uh like if i don't win this conversation like 
you know, something bad will happen. It's now just like, oh, I either learned something or I'm exactly where I started. And either of those outcomes are fine. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I agree. Um, well, I think we have now thoroughly <laughs> yeah, yeah, through yeah. this subject. Sorry, that was quite a that was quite a tangent. Uh, no, 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 no. I went off on a big one too. We've uh, lots of tangents, but that's that's what the podcast is. Um, that has been a fantastic episode. I'm really happy with what we've unpacked here. Um, you've really dove into some of the core elements of fabrics of masculinity, and I think that's also why we're getting kind of long winded with our episodes now, is we're really diving into the meat of stuff. Um, yeah. Stuff I, that, that I, you know, I think are hard to process uh, for anyone, uh, even with assistance. And so, you know, this, this is definitely a topic we can, we can revisit uh, at some point because there's so much to talk about, about the ways in which, like, um, it's difficult for men to be vulnerable uh, without getting relentlessly punished uh you know we haven't touched even on the way that vulnerability is punished in male circles <laughs> um you know we we spent some time talking about how it's punished in like left-wing circles um but uh you know there's all kinds of ways that it's punished in right-wing circles and all kinds of ways that it's punished in uh society at large and and uh you know find you know th there's a lot to talk about in in terms of like how do we become people who can be um vulnerable with each other without um having people exploit that vulnerability yeah no um i agree um yeah, so if you have any questions on this topic, specific things on this topic that you really wish we had dove into, please reach out to us on Facebook, reach out to us on Twitter. I'm uh, at HandgunsPod on Twitter. Um, reach out to us eh, wherever you find us. We're around. You probably know us personally. We don't have that big of an audience. Um, please reach out to us. Uh, DM us. Like we, we've, we've chatted with, with some other folks in messages. Um let's dive into some stuff maybe that we didn't hit on this on this episode um the book that i used for this episode is again daring greatly by Brene brown i very much recommend it i of course there are some uh, there are some criticisms i could have of the book but I, you know i think there should be anybody should hold criticisms of any book they read uh, even if they wrote it themselves um uh, I highly recommend therapy. This is where I dove into this topic originally, where I uh, got recommended this book, uh, and I have other books now on my book list. Um, yeah, uh, if you can afford it, if you have the, um, you know, there are a million different barriers between people and therapy, um, and but I think everybody who is capable should seek it out and and i i also for that matter think that it should be available to everyone uh affordable health care for all um but yeah for sure uh, oh also cannot forget our sponsor that game i don't remember the name of uh, <laughs> yeah it's not raid shadow legends 
Um, so. yeah, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, and of course, as always, if you want to donate to some of the efforts and some of the things that we do, you can donate to Red Dirt Collective at or patreon.com backslash Red Dirt Collective uh, or like uh, everywhere else where donations can be made, I guess. Um, like Venmo, uh, other places. Um, but yeah, no, um, we do mutual aid. You've listened to the podcast. You probably know what we do. We do mutual aid stuff. We do... Um, organizing, uh, labor organizing, tenant organizing, uh, election stuff, just all kinds of really cool stuff. Look up Red Dirt Collective everywhere where the internet is found. So, yeah, thank you all. Have a wonderful morning, afternoon, evening, or any other time of day there is.